From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. He doesn't think of himself as a public intellectual and he gave up economics and cricket after pursuing them for 5 years when he realized he was second rate at both. But few will contest Ramchandra Guha's place as a first-rate historian, writer, and a generous mentor to several young historians. His meticulous and deeply researched books, elegantly written, have introduced new generations of readers to the ideas that animated the freedom struggle and the many remarkable figures that were a part of it. His latest book, Rebels Against the Raj, profiles seven foreign men and women. who fought on the side of india it makes for compelling reading in this podcast ram guha speaks about this remarkable cast of characters he has lined up and while steadfastly refusing to talk politics he does say that india is at a crisis point and also talks about how he sees his own role in public life ram the impetus for this book came from your wonderful biography of very relwin and in your research uh about the national movement as you unearthed more and more about these uh figures these foreigners who fought for india's freedom what was it that especially struck you about these men and women or renegades as you call them so I mean, each one of them was special and distinctive to me there seven of them and i've been asked who is your favorite i have no favorites uh, you know i have no favorites among my children i have no favorites among these seven all were interesting complicated uh, daring courageous all were risk takers all were going against the grain all left a body of literature which is always good because you if you have letters and books and documents which people left behind by which you can understand and analyze your their ideas which i was able to get so i think i would say what the thing that i enjoyed most was finding new material and that's always the challenge for a historian and a biographer you know even if someone is relatively well known uh, like mira ben how do you tell their story in a new way and i was f- able to find lots of letters meera had written to gandhi that were not published uh, i was able to find details of a unfulfilled love affair she had i was able to find lots of first rate articles she wrote about environmental degradation in the himalaya in the 1950s two decades before the shipko movement likewise with pratt or honeyman or some of the other figures in the book i think the process of discovering all these fascinating materials you know written materials sometimes intimate personal correspondence sometimes polemical political articles hmm. you know, that's really what i what i enjoyed very much writing this book i mean it's uh, one of the among all my books this may be the one uh, i probably enjoyed writing the most uh, why did you decide for instance to do a book on on foreigners who fought for india's freedom well as i said it started with elwin uh, and uh, elwin played a very important role in my personal life miller so i was a cricketer in college which i have written about elsewhere and not a very good cricketer but a very obsessive passionate cricketer i was a uh, studying economics in uh, delhi university and uh, i did 5 years of economics at the end of, and 5 years of playing cricket for st stephen's college and in my fifth year i realized what i should have realized in my first year that i was both a second rate cricketer and a second rate economist at around this time i read elwin by accident and i was charmed by elwin's writings i thought economics mere bas ki nahi hai it's not for me it's too analytical and complicated and abstract but elwin writes about human beings 
So I became a sociologist and then a historian because inspired by Elwin. Then I wrote a book on Elwin. So Elwin played a very transformative role in my personal life. And when I was writing about Elwin, I found that among his few regrets was that he never went to prison during the freedom struggle. So uh, he identified uh, with the freedom movement. He was close to Gandhi and Nehru. He did pioneering work on Adivasis, but he had a certain envy of Mira Ben, who was his British friend who actually went to jail, you know. And so I thought, let me, and that was in my mind. And I was always interested through Elwin more broadly about people who change their nationality. You know, and in the reverse direction, Meenal. So now it's, you know, it's kind of so common to find well-educated Indians from IIT and I am going and becoming big bosses of tech companies in America. That's a kind of a, I mean, of course, their in, intelligence and entrepreneurship has to be welcome. But socially, it's a very easy transition. It's going to a far more comfortable life. But what does it take for a man or a woman born in a prosperous Western country uh, to abandon that life of security and status for an uncertain uh, you know, journey to a poor, uh, colonized country like India? I mean, at that time, it was very foreign. Absolutely. I mean, because we didn't have, we knew very little about these countries. You know, we knew very little about England. They knew very little about us. There was no internet. There was no television. Travel was very arduous. So I was always struck by this phenomenon. And of course, there are some who don't figure in this book who are also equally admirable, like C.F. Andrews or Sister Nivedita, who became uh, an Indian. But I thought I must restrict myself to only those who went to jail. So in my book, I make a distinction between bridge builders like Sister Nivedita and renegades who crossed over, who were so decisively identified with the Indian freedom movement as to embrace arrest or in some cases like Horniman, deportation, you know, uh, which is some ways worse than arrest because he spent seven years out of India because that's the British didn't like him here. But his great efforts to keep coming back so fascinating. It was, I mean, he was very resourceful in the end. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, he kept on trying for a passport. He kept on being refused. His applications were endorsed by great writers like A.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw. Yet the British thought he's a troublemaker. They don't want him here. And then he found a loophole in the Defense of India rules and landed up in Madras. And then they couldn't kick him out. Yeah, I mean, he was a very interesting and colorful figure. And I'm glad... Uh, you know, he's still remembered in, in the city you live in by the Honeyman uh, Circle. One of the most fascinating things, of course, is is how the life of Gandhiji intersected with, with the renegades featured in the book. And we are recording this podcast on January 26th. He was assassinated on January 30th by Gorse. There's, of course, a whole lot of revisionism going on right now. But your, can you talk a little bit about the great pull that yeah. Gandhiji had on the lives of these foreigners. I mean, it's so remarkable to read. For instance, Mirabhan was almost kind of obsessed by him. So, you see, of course, he was the dominant political figure of his age. You know, so uh, if you were in living in America in uh, 19th century, in the 1860s or 1870s, you would have to engage with Lincoln. For example, if you were a Frenchman going to America, you would have to engage with Lincoln, you know, because he was whether you liked him, disliked him, had complicated feelings about him. So Gandhi was the dominant political personality of the age. But apart from that, I think Gandhi was not xenophobic. You know, if you look at Gandhi's own intellectual evolution, he owes as much to uh, the Russian novelist Tolstoy and the British writer 
John Ruskin as he does to his Jaina philosopher, uh, his Jaina mentor, the philosopher Raichan Bai, or his political mentor Gokhale. So Gandhi was open-minded. He was willing to embrace the world, learn from the world, befriend the world, while being uh, unshakable from his belief that India must free and must find its own way, you know, uh, uh, in, in the course of history. So I think Gandhi was attractive in that sense to these kinds of seekers. Now, all seven of uh, my renegades had interesting relationships with Gandhi. Meera Benz, as you point out, Meenal was devotional. It was reverential. It was worshipful. But Ali Besant was actually rivalrous and competitive because she started the Home Rule Movement and thought she is the kind of visionary who's bringing, bringing India freedom on the Irish model. And then here comes this weak little Gujarati lawyer who kind of, uh, uh, you know, overshadows her. I so, almost felt bad for her at the end of the chapter. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, it is, it is sad. It is sad, you know. And I think that's something, of course, that's very, that's something uh, everyone has to learn. Every successful man or woman has to learn to experience. No man, particularly man, but in this case, woman, no person at the height of his career, you know, uh, the, the richest man, the greatest sportsman, uh, the most successful entrepreneur, the most powerful politician, they think they are immortal. Once power, among the thing, things that power does is you think it's not, you don't realize it's ephemeral. You think it's always there. And I think Ali Besant's fate to be so brutally eclipsed, first by Tilak, but more comprehensively by Gandhi, you know, tells you, I think it's, it's something, I think that chapter, all our captains of industry and all our uh, uh, all our heads of political parties, not just in the government, but in the opposition also should read. All our chief ministers, our prime ministers might find something. Uh, because if your fame is ephemeral, power is ephemeral. And Ali Besson did not recognize this. In 1917, she was arrested. She came out and there was such celebration at her release. She was appointed the first female president of the Indian National Congress. And by 1919, she was nowhere right now. It's like, it's, 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 it's a kind of a cautionary lesson what struck me was how accessible Gandhiji was to everybody. That was his nature and that's why also he was killed. But anyone could meet him, debate with him, talk to him and walk into his ashram and if you want to murder him. Yes, that was his nature. But he believed a lot in dialogue. And I think that's one of the things that attracted, like Spratt. Spratt was a Marxist and then he reads Gandhi in jail, is cured of his Marxism, goes to Sevagram, spends three days with him. Now, look, I think obviously partly Gandhi might have been flattered that a communist, an English communist is changing his mind and wants to talk to me, now fine. But you know, he's saying, okay, walk with me, be with me while I'm spinning and we'll chat. So that was a very special uh, quality that Gandhi had of accessibility. The other remarkable thing, of course, is the kind of cosmopolitanism and the, the quality of the debates, uh, quite sharp, but unfailingly civil, even, even the sharp debate between Mrs. Besant and, and Gandhiji, for instance, yes. that marked the freedom movement. Give us a sense of the spirit of that times, because independent India was kind of forged from these times, right? Yeah, yeah. so I, I know these debates were not only about politics. They were about science, they were about health, they were about gender equality, they were about caste, you know. And uh, of course, they were not always civil. Sometimes they could be bitter and polemical. But it's, they were, had a... They had a high degree of intellectual content. You know, they were not, it was not spin doctoring. It was not things said for effect. Each person, each participant in these great debates had carefully thought out their position. I mean, if you look at, it's not, it's slightly uh, not relevant to this book, but it's relevant to my biography of Gandhi. If you look at the debates of, between Gandhi and Ambedkar, you, in a non-polemical, 
non-ideological way, you actually come up uh, increasing a respect for both of them because both of them, I know Gandhi deeply believed that he could reform Hinduism and abolish untouchability. Ambedkar deeply believed that abolishing untouchability was inconceivable within the ideological and moral framework of Hinduism. So he had to go outside. But this is a kind of, there are two very different philosophical positions, each sincerely believed. I mean, it's not point scoring uh, and what about of the kind you find in political debates today. And similarly, if you look at the debates here, you know, the Spratt's writings, for example, or, or, or any of them, you know, I think there's a kind of a thoughtfulness, a depth, and an authenticity to what they think. They think they think what they do because they've thought about it, read about it, reflected upon it, and then get articulated with some conviction. You know, it's not, uh, I mean, look at what's happening in UP today. You know, uh, UP, uh, SP to Congress, Congress to SP, SP to BJP. You know, what kind of principle do any of these people have, right? So I think that's something one can learn from them. And even when they change their mind, uh, when Spratt, for example, moves from communism to anti-communism, it's a very carefully thought out position. It comes out of conviction. It does not come out of opportunism. There is a lot of interest in history right now, hmm. whether it's revisionism or, or history hmm. as it is. Uh, and there are a lot of young people who are wanting to write on history. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the craft and, and, uh, and your process? Yeah, so, uh, uh, Minal, first of all, in my view, uh, historical research is always based on, always, they always look for primary materials. So either, for example, in this book, I look to find ways of telling the anniversary story, which no one had told before. And I took, uh, uh, brought to life people who had been forgotten, like Kaitan and Spratt and so on. Right? So new primary research in archives, in newspapers, in through oral histories, through travels across. So that's one part of the framework is in-depth detailed research, which you won't get in a library or on the internet. You know, these have to be fugitive, unpublished manuscripts and documents and so on. The second part is narrative. So history is both social science and it's also literature. So you have to craft a narrative that is, you know, brings the reader in. And finally, it's not just anecdotes. It's not just a story. You know, I am glad that I'm, I'm actually trained in economics and sociology so that I'm interested in questions of caste and gender and tribe and inequality and the comparative life of nations. So a historian must place his or her findings against a wider social and political canvas, you know. So you have an understanding, a serious understanding of how society works. What are the cleavages in society? How do the how do the axes of these cleavages change? Why is it that caste is so important in in India and class is so important in in Europe? You know what a role does technology play in transforming how people live? So a sociological anthropological understanding is also crucial to the historian. You know, historian is not just a storyteller. No, the historian is also an analyst. Of course, telling the story well is crucial and vital, and uh, that's the way you draw your readers in. So there are three elements to it, in-depth research, uh, hopefully an elegant writing style, and awareness of the complexities and the dynamics of social change. So there, which does not come from reading only history books. You know, you have, you'll have to read Marx and Weber and Foucault and Durkheim and Simone de Beauvoir and, and Ambedkar and so on and so forth. So I think all of this, I think, uh, is uh, 
how I see uh, it's kind of multi. Uh, but finally, no, every work of history is provisional. You know, history is, as the Dutch historian Peter Gale said, an argument with our end. You know, India after Gandhi is a thousand pages long. But I begin by saying this is a provisional book. It took 10 years to write. Somebody will come one day and write a better book, a more in-depth book, a more convincing book, a more plausible account of, but it'll take 10 years. You, know, you can't do it in three months. <laughs> so, so, you, so and you can't do it on the basis of WhatsApp forwards either, right? So, and no work of history is final. They're all, you know, there to be, and no work of biography either. You know, it's not like mathematics, which is a theorem which you prove or disprove. You incrementally add to it, you advance the debate and the narrative. Now, there have, of course, been, I mean, there's been subaltern history in India, there's this Marxist uh, history. Uh, and at the moment, we are seeing what some people call revisionist history or, or history from the right. Yeah. Uh, how do you see this whole movement about telling history from the point of view of the aggrieved people of the right? Yeah, so first of all, it's, uh, it's rather peculiar that when you have 300 seats in parliament, you won two successive elections, you control the media, you control, you know, you control the institutions, the judiciary is not very timid, you control the narrative, you're likely to win a third term and you're still, you're 80% of the population and you're still insecure and aggrieved and paranoid. It's rather strange, you know, Hindus are becoming uh, a majority with a minority complex. You know, this is a phrase first coined to describe the Sinhalas in Sri Lanka, a majority of the minority complex. So I don't understand the aggrieved business. It is true that most historians came from the left and Marxist historians, I myself have been a long-standing critic of Marxist historians. I admire Marx, but not necessarily Marxist historians. And Marx himself famously said towards the end of his life, I am not a Marxist. You know, uh, he's, you know, I don't call myself a Gandhi either. And I think Ambedkar would not have called himself an Ambedkarite, you know. Yes. So they provide, every great thinker provides a corpus of ideas which you take and, and develop and reject some. Now, I wish good luck. Uh, it's good that we're having a debate. So it is, there's no doubt that uh, history writing in India was do dominated by a certain point of view. But at the same time, the revisionism of today has a lot to do with the dynastic culture of the Congress party. You know, if the Congress party, because the Congress party has actually ceded its, its, its heroes to the other side. I mean, Patel was a congressman, you know, Bose for large parts of his career was a congressman. Bose's uh, admiration for Gandhi is well known, but because the Congress party has discarded, now Shastri will be next. Shastri, a great uh, a Congress prime minister would be next. So his, these, the history debates today are not driven really by scholarship, uh, or, uh, but they're driven by politics. You know, and one of the things, one of the advantages of being in Bangalore is that you're very far away from Delhi. The only thing I tell young people of any political party, uh, young people of any, uh, uh, you know, any ideological style, left wing or centrist or right wing, so on, Stay away from parties and politicians. Never have yourself in a frame with a politician. Like, why do you say that? Because, first of all, you must be totally independent of, you, may have, you, you have your political views, you vote. But you need to cultivate the respect of your peers. You know, it's not uh, as if being photographed with a MP or a minister uh, or a, uh, 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 is, you know, that's not what scholars should do. That's not what writers should do. That's not what artists should do.
at all. That's not what scientists should do. You know, your intellectual craft depends on complete autonomy. So, for example, I got I over the last 30 years, I've gone to Delhi often. For my research, I have never met a single politician. I refuse all invitations. I never attend parties. People, I uh, there was one exception at somebody's request. I met them and gave them a lecture, but that was private. In if people ask want to meet me, they have to come to Bangalore. I will meet them at Koshi's, not at their house or my house, and with no photograph. A young scholar. So a young scholar, uh, for example, recently wanted to meet me uh, to discuss a book. And the first thing he said was, can I take a photograph? Because he'll put it up on social media. I said, we've come to discuss your book, not to publicize individuals. So, mm. Now, I think, so this kind of, it's, of course you need the media. I'm talking to you to promote my ideas. But you have to be very careful about who you associate with. You know, Historians are not party men. In the past, too many historians were party men of the left or of the Congress party. The danger today is the historians will want to become party men of the BJP and the RSS. You, that is the kiss of death for your scholarly integrity. You should always resist that temptation uh, to uh, associate with any politician, particularly in India, you know, because in India, they're using you. You think you're using them, but they're actually using you. And this debate goes back a very long time. You know, in uh, 1992, January, when I was a very young man, I had published just my first book. I My name was mentioned in parliament because Arjun Singh had announced a committee with my name in it, without my without my permission. Hmm. With, uh, chaired by mostly, com, you know, with JNU historians in it writing the history of independent India. And I absolutely refused. I said, I, I don't want to be part of any Sarkari enterprise, no, writing history. You know, you know, I can, if someone wants to, a, a committee on how to reform university education, fine. You know, one can be part of that. But to give a state-sponsored history, a party-sponsored history, I mean, this is these are things that we should really beware of. And I'm, in some ways, I'm lucky I live in Bangalore because you're so far away that the temptations don't come. You know, if the temptations come, you might, you know, who knows, one might succumb, you know. But it's, I think it, it has to be the depth, the detail, the caliber of your scholarly work that should persuade first your peers and then your reading public, you know, not who you hang up. You briefly kind of dwelt on it, this whole, uh, the, the Congress kind of letting go of its heroes. Now, yeah. the sense when, and we talk about this whole sense of being aggrieved, is that Netaji was denied prime ministership, Vallabhai Patel was denied prime ministership. It's almost as if uh, it was a prize that Nehru just sort of swooped down and snatched. Uh, can you just talk a little from a historical perspective? This is brilliant diversionary tactics by the ruling party, enabled by the Congress, that the whole discourse is about, you know, I don't contest what's that history. I don't want to get into were Nehru and Patel rivals, once upon a time I used to do it. You know, please read Rajmohan Gandhi's biography and you'll find out the truth uh, about Nehru and Patel. Uh, so uh, a lot of this, a lot of the angry historical debates, often poorly informed historical debates, have to do, the primary blame is not in Narendra Modi in the BJP, but with Sonia Gandhi and the Congress party. You know, that's really, because they disowned all these people. I mean, it's, you know, when in 2010, Hmm. Congress celebrated its 125th anniversary. Shastri was not mentioned. Narsimha was not mentioned. In fact, Sonia Gandhi claimed liberalization was Rajiv Gandhi's idea. 
and Manmohan Singh, Nansamaraj, finance minister was standing there listening to this. Right. So a lot of, you know, I think the, you know, I mean, the rise of authoritarianism globally is often enabled by weak and dysfunctional opposition. But anyway, I don't want to get in, involved in this WhatsApp issue. I want to write my next book. I'm glad this book has come out. I've already started thinking about my next project. And as soon as we finish our, uh, you know, uh, our conversation, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to my notes. Yeah. Can you talk about what that is going to be? I think I have, could possibly write a short book on environmental thinkers of the 19th century. It'll be in the past. It won't be in the present. It'll be about the past. That's one idea. I might, I'm still fascinated by the figure of Gandhi. I still have things I, to say about Gandhi, I hope. Uh, so yeah, there's no real... Uh, I'd like also, possibly, to write about a non-Indian figure. You know, one of the things about Rebels Against the Raj Miral, mm. what I really liked was for the first time I wrote about women with some seriousness and depth. So yes. there are three women, Meera Ben, Ali Besant, and uh, Sarla, Sarla Ben. So all my previous biographical subjects have been made. You know, and I think I really enjoyed this challenge to get into the mind and mentality and life of a remarkable woman, which I had not done before. In this case, three remarkable women. I think I'd like to write a book on a non-Indian figure. You know, uh, just to expand my own understanding, to go beyond, you know, mm. where I am. Who this will be, we'll have to see. You know, I'll have to find a the right person on whom there is enough primary materials which I have access to. The pandemic has to completely end so that I can travel to whichever country they are in. But I, I, mean, I think that's probably one of my last uh, uh, intellectual uh, uh, hopes that I could write something that does not have India at as its uh, background. You, of course, chronicled freedom movement, uh, India after Gandhi. Uh, where do you see the trajectory of India? Uh, I have once or twice predicted political events of the future and come lamentably uh, wrong. So I'm not going down that uh, route. Our country is going through a, the fourth crisis of the Republic. The first being after partition, the second being during the China war and the Pakistan war of the 60s, the third being the emergency, and the fourth being today. The challenges we face today, uh, you know, uh, are very complex and many-sided. And uh, putting new statues up and inaugurating new bridges is not going to solve that. And uh, so I think it's a, we are living through complicated, difficult times. Uh, we came out of what happened in partition. We came out of what happened in emergency. How we will come out of this will depend a lot on transformations in how we think about politics and, of course, what young Indians want from this country. So I'll be observing, but I won't be predicting. Tell me, how do you see your own role? So my role is simply as a writer and as a scholar. You know, I first, I actually don't like the term public intellectual. Okay, it's often used to describe me, but I don't like it, you know. Why? Because... Uh, I would rather be known by my books. I mean, I write columns because fine, you know, you reach a wider audience and it gives you a certain discipline. Intellectuals can observe, observe analyze, document, witness, record. Intellectuals are not change makers. You know, uh, it is social activists, political leaders, doctors, teachers, entrepreneurs who change society. When we record, interpret, analyze, document, we must be true to our scholarly calling. We must not make 
professional compromises or personal compromises or ideological compromises, but no more. I have a very modest role of uh, conception of the role of the intellectual. You know, uh, and I said, I, public intellectual is a grand term which I disavow. I mean, scientists change society. You know, Tim Berners-Lee changed the world, right? Okay, okay. Now, uh, I mean, Dr. Varghese Kurian changed the world. You know, mm. uh, Ella Bhatt and people like her, what they did with Seva, the women of the Chipko movement changed the world, you know. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Subhash Bose and Jawaharlal Nehru and Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay have changed the world, right? I observe, I document, I analyze, uh, uh, and I reflect, but I do so on the basis of discipline, hard work, rigor, and intellectual and moral independence. That would be my, my attempt. So yes, I would sir. like to be known by my books. You know, I mean, this is, this is my, uh, you know, <laughs> I've written about a dozen books of which is the last. I would urge people to read them if they want. You know, if they want to interest ticket, they can read my book, Column of Foreign Field, which is another special favorite of mine, which a lot of it is set in Bombay and around the Maidans of Bombay. I have other projects. And of course, I, I enjoy the, uh, engaging with a wider public through my newspaper columns. But um, newspaper columnists also don't change the world. I mean, maybe in some countries they do. If they deal with technical issues, so possibly Paul Krugman, is yes. shaping um, American public opinion in uh, in constructive ways. You know, if uh, a scientist, if Tim Berners-Lee was to write a fortnightly column on technology and society, maybe they can shape the world. But mere historians don't shape the world. They just inform and educate and occasionally entertain. That's it. Today's episode is produced by Jairad Singh and Sunay Marathi. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas, and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.